Hi, this is Chuck Shazer. The following S-Factor presentation is dedicated to one of the greatest men I ever knew in my life who unfortunately passed away a few weeks ago. His name was Stephen Nage. He was a great friend, a great inspiration. The following show is in memory of Stephen Nage. Are you a person with a curious mind? Do all things science excite you? Today we're going to talk about the science news and geoengineering. Get ready, the S-Factor starts now. Four, three, two, one. Welcome to the S Factor. Science. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Oh, what a perfect song that is! Perfect theme music for the S Factor. Welcome aboard the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at one o'clock on Cruising ninety-two point one WVLT. Welcome aboard my starship. We're going to travel around the solar system, visit interstellar space, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. Welcome aboard. But here we are, and there's plenty going around in the world today to talk about in the science world. There are always exciting things going on in the world of science and technology, and if that stuff interests you, you're at the right place. You've come to the right place. If you enjoy learning, if you enjoy learning about exciting new stories, things that human beings are embarking on, discoveries in science and technology, this is the show for you. As always, the S-Factor Radio Show podcast is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. ScienceAnimated.net is my website. And on that website, I sell a product called Science Animated Human Body. It is a 40-minute DVD. It is a, an extremely exciting journey into the human body. It's a 40-minute animated feature. You can support the show by purchasing Science Animated Human Body. And if you help support the show, I'd appreciate that very much. Now let's get right into what is going on in the world of science since we last spoke. Of course, when it comes to watching news on television or reading a headline, of course you want to have always, as the author or the person putting the story together, you want to have a headline that grabs attention, right? We all know this. It piques our curiosity. Well, that's kind of how I felt when I found this. This story is from Fox Business, and this grabbed my attention immediately when I was going through the latest and, and most interesting things in the world of science and technology, right? Elon Musk has admitted that a bunch of people will probably die in the race to get to Mars. The SpaceX pioneer made his blunt prediction as he laughed at how his planned Mars mission was being seen as some escape hatch for rich people. You might die. It's going to be uncomfortable and probably won't have good food, Musk told Peter Deanimus, the founder and chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation for Scientific Discovery. Advertisements for the journey should note how it will be an arduous and dangerous journey where you may not come back alive, Musk said with a chuckle. Honestly, a bunch of people will probably die in the beginning, he said. 
while insisting it will also be a glorious adventure and it will be an amazing experience. Now, let's say that you are out there and you have signed up for this. How would you feel about that now? I mean, of course, anybody that signs up to be on that first mission to Mars, because I think they're also looking for some lay people because they want to build a community up there. But if you know the risks involved, obviously there are so many just getting there and then surviving once you reach the red planet. That's a whole other challenging situation. But how would you feel knowing that the owner of SpaceX said this? Would you care? I mean, it's not like you don't know this. But this was certainly an interesting headline when I read it. I was like, wow. You know, but I guess, you know, he said this because he figures people do know the risks involved. And, you know, last year, 2020, in March, I had a show called Mars Madness right here on the S-Factor. And it was all about the red planet, everything we know about, everything we knew about it up until that point. And this is a pre-recorded show, so I take emails now. So at that show, I was live in the studio on air and... Someone called in, they, they said, why in the heck are we going to Mars? Why are we wasting our time? And, you know, it's, it's the way quite a few people feel about it that I, that I know that aren't into space and exploration. But there's so many things that come from the, the technology that is, that is created in order to start an expedition like that. There were a lot of inventions made, created, when we were ready to go to the moon, when we planned on going to the moon. Velcro was, was something that was created for the space mission, for the mission to the moon. So that's just one thing. You have many inventions that pop up for the better betterment of all of us. The scientists planning this mission know what's at stake. They know how risky it is. And they also know how arduous the preparation is going to be. I mean, they're doing amazing things with these rovers. Have you watched any of that? They have one shot to get those landings right when they, they bring those rovers there. And I think the latest one that they that landed on Mars is about the size of a small car. So these are no small achievements. These, these are major achievements for humanity. I, I think the excitement can only be matched to that of the people in 1969 when they were watching the moon landing. It's going to be just as exciting. I, I for one, can't wait for it. It's going to be very, very cool to see that on television, especially the new technology we have with communications. Elon Musk also said here that it's not for everyone, he stressed. Adding with another chuckle, volunteers only. Musk's space company has launched more than 100 rockets over the past decade in its effort to bring tourists to the moon and Mars, but a number of unmanned prototypes have gone up in flames. Still, Musk predicted in December that his company will have humans on Mars by 2026, or only five years away from this, folks. In 2015, Musk discussed putting a city on Mars after a successful rocket landing by SpaceX. He then published a paper in June 2017 on making humanity a multi-planetary species, laying out plans for having as many as one million people on Mars. Now, that, that makes me think instantly of Professor Stephen Hawking. He said that years ago, before he passed. He said, we have got to, we have to become a multi-planetary species. External threats from space, terrestrial threats from Earth, just, you know, geothermal threats, climate change. And then you have the threats, of course, with humanity. Humanity's animalistic qualities, I guess you could call them. 
unfortunately. The saber rattling, the war that we, you know, that, that can break out. Professor Stephen Hawking wanted to see us on several planets in the solar system. And you know what? I think it's a great idea. I'm for it. If we are only on Earth, that doesn't mean we don't take care of Earth. We have to take care of our home planet and do what we can. So, as an insurance policy, if anything, being a multi-planetary species is a really good idea, in my opinion. Disagree with me? I want to hear from you. Email me your thoughts on this story and whatever else is on your mind. You can email me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. I answer every email. I really enjoy them. So don't be shy. Email away. Here we have a very interesting news bit from Live Science. An ancient coronavirus swept across East Asia 25,000 years ago. An ancient coronavirus may have infected the ancestors of people living in modern-day East Asia starting 25,000 years ago and for millennia afterward, according to a new study. The COVID-19 pandemic, which has now claimed more than 3 million lives, has revealed just how vulnerable we are to new viruses. But as new as this threat seems, humans have been battling dangerous viruses since the beginning of time. There have always been viruses infecting human populations, said senior study author David Ennard, an assistant professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Arizona. Viruses are really one of the main drivers of natural selection in human genomes. That's because genes that increase people's chances of surviving pathogens are more likely to be passed on to new generations. Using modern-day tools, researchers can detect the fingerprints of these ancient pathogens by pinpointing how they drove natural selection in the DNA of people living today. This information, in turn, could provide valuable insight to help predict future pandemics. And are told live science, it is almost always true that things that occurred often in the past are more likely to occur again in the future. Using information available in a public database, Ennard and his team analyzed the genomes of 2,504 people across 26 different human populations around the world. The findings, which have not yet been peer-reviewed, were posted January 13th to the preprint database, and the study is in the process of being reviewed for publication in a scientific journal. When coronaviruses slip inside human cells, they hijack the cell's machinery in order to replicate. That means that a virus's success depends on its interactions with hundreds of different human proteins. The researchers zoomed in on a set of 420 human proteins known to interact with coronaviruses, 332 of which interact with, with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Most of these proteins help the virus to replicate inside the cells, but some help the cell fight off the virus. The genes that code for those proteins constantly and randomly mutate. But if a mutation gives a gene an advantage, such as a better ability to fight off a virus, it will have a better chance of being passed down to the next generation or selected for. Indeed, the researchers found that in people of East Asian descent, certain genes known to interact with coronaviruses have been selected for. In other words, over time, certain variants appeared more frequently than would be expected by chance. 
This set of mutations likely helped the ancestors of this population because more become more resilient to the ancient virus by altering how much of these proteins were made by cells. The researchers found that gene variants that coded for 42 of the 420 proteins they analyzed started to increase in frequency around 25,000 years ago. The spread of advantageous variants continued until about 5,000 years ago, suggesting that the ancient virus continued to threaten these populations for a long time. Viruses exert some of the strongest selective pressures on humans to adapt, and coronaviruses have presumably been around for a long time before humans existed, said Joel Wortham, an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, who is not a part of the study. So although it is not unexpected that coronaviruses would have driven adaptation in humans, this study presents a fascinating investigation into how and when this played out. Still, it's very difficult to say whether or not the virus that caused this evolution was also a coronavirus, but it seems like a plausible working theory. Ennard agreed that the ancient pathogen that plagued our ancestors might not have been a coronavirus. Instead, it may have been another type of virus that happened to interact with human cells the same way coronaviruses do. Though we see glimpses of the impact of this ancient virus on people's ancestors, future generations will likely not be able to see the traces of SARS-CoV-2 in our genome, and are added, thanks to vaccination, the virus won't have time to drive evolutionary adaptation, he said. So that's a very interesting article about the ancient coronavirus. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll be right back with more S-Factor. that dial, you've landed on the S Factor. Absolutely love that tune. Welcome back to the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. If you are a curious-minded person, if you love science, if you tune into the Science Channel and you listen to science podcasts, you're going to love this show. It's called The S Factor. You can hear me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, or you can check out the podcast at any time. It's actually a collection of all of my past shows here on the radio. Just go to your Google machine and type in The S Factor Podcast, and my show will pop right up for you. When I saw this next story, I thought I was seeing things. This is coming at you via Forbes. Scientists discover tooth-growing drug. Have you ever heard of such a thing? A drug that was originally created for Alzheimer's patients has been found to help repair cavities and tooth degeneration. Researchers at King's College in London found that the drug... Tide glucid, 
encourages stem cells in teeth to create new dentine. A tiny sponge of the drug was inserted into a cavity, which repaired the damaged tooth in six weeks. The treatment has only been used on mice, but scientists say it should soon be brought to a dental practice near you. Fillings are susceptible to wear and tear and can occasionally be in need of repair and replacement, said Dr. Nigel Carter of the Oral Health Foundation. Creating a more natural way for the tooth to repair itself could not only eliminate these issues, but also be a far less invasive treatment option for patients. Now, what do you think about that? A drug that can grow new teeth. Now, I don't know how far away this is from being available to us, but just in case, I would still brush your teeth two to three times a day. This from Yahoo News. Florida residents in uproar as scientists prepare to release 750 million genetically modified mosquitoes. Florida residents are furious as scientists prepare to release hundreds of millions of genetically modified mosquitoes into their communities. The experiment, led by British biotech company Oxitec, will see around 750 million male mosquitoes sent out into Florida Keys over the next two years in an attempt to control the population of an invasive disease-carrying species which has settled in the area. But many residents are unhappy at being part of what one group called a Jurassic Park experiment. The first wave of the project will see thousands of mosquitoes released at six locations this week, with 144,000 expected to be set free in the first 12 weeks. The project has been launched to combat the Egypti mosquito, which makes up about 4% of the mosquito population in the Keys, but is responsible for virtually all mosquito-borne diseases transmitted to humans, including dengue, Zika, and yellow fever. It can also transmit heartworm and other potentially deadly illnesses to pets and animals. Only female mosquitoes bite humans and pass on disease, because they need blood to produce eggs. Oxitec has modified the genes of male mosquitoes so that they carry a protein that will kill off any female offspring before they reach mature biting age. Males, which only feed on nectar, will survive and pass on the genes. The hope is that the modified male mosquitoes will breed with the existing wild female mosquitoes, slowly eliminating the Andes Egypti population. While the project has approval from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, Barry Ray of the Florida Keys Environmental Coalition said, People here in Florida do not consent to the genetically modified mosquitoes or being human experiments. Earlier this year, dozens of protesters gathered outside the Murray Nelson Government and Cultural Arts Center in Key Largo, complaining that the full impact of the experiment could not be known. In a statement denouncing the project, environmental group Friends of the Earth said, The release of genetically engineered mosquitoes will needlessly put Floridians the environment, and endangered species at risk in the midst of a pandemic. But Oxitec said we have released over a billion of our mosquitoes over the years. There is no potential for risk to the environment or humans. Oxitec said its modified mosquitoes have successfully provided significant suppression of the wild Andes gypti in other geographies and do not cause harm to beneficial insects like bees and butterflies. Have you ever been to... The Florida Keys? I haven't been down there in a long, long time, but the one thing I remember more than anything is in some sections of those islands, you can actually 
see the ocean to your left, see the ocean to your right. And I always thought to myself on those small strips, can you imagine an enormous hurricane coming along? It, would just, it looked like it was just completely blank. It just wiped you right off. <laughs> I always found that to be a little unnerving, let's just say. How many animal lovers do we have out there? Do you have a cat? Well, here's the best way to pet a cat, according to science and according to LiveScience.com. Many of us will have experienced that super-friendly cat who seems to love being stroked one minute, only to bite or swipe at us the next. It might be easy at this point to blame it on a cat, but what's likely happening right here is we're not just stroking them right. It might be easy at this point to blame it on the cat, but what's likely happening here is that we're just not stroking them right. To understand why this may be, we first need to know a bit more about Kitty's ancestry. It's likely that the domestic cat's ancestors, the African wildcat, were regarded as mere pest control, but modern-day cats are often treated as our valued companions or even fur babies. This social shift in the cat-human relationship is thought to have occurred around 4,000 years ago, a little later than man's best friend, the domestic dog. Although this may seem like a sufficient amount of time for species to fully adjust to increased social demands, this is unlikely to be the case for your feline friend. Domestic cats can also display relatively modest genetic divergence from their ancestors, meaning their brains are probably still wired to think like a wildcat's. Wildcats live solitary lives and invest considerable time and effort communicating indirectly, via visual and chemical messages, just to avoid having to see each other, so it's unlikely that domestic cats inherited many complex social skills from their relatives. Humans, on the other hand, are an inherently social species, favoring proximity and touch during displays of affection. It's not surprising, then, that our initial reaction when we see a cat or kitten is to want to stroke, cuddle, and smush all over them. Though it should also come as no surprise that many cats can find this type of interaction a little overwhelming. Although a lot of cats do like being stroked, and in certain contexts will choose us over food, human interaction is something they have to learn to enjoy during their comparatively short, sensitive period, between two and seven weeks old. When it comes to human-cat interactions, the characteristics of humans are also important. Our personalities and gender, the regions of a cat's body we touch, and how we generally handle cats may all play an important role in how the cat responds to our affections. And while some cats may react aggressively to unwanted physical attention, others may merely tolerate our social advantages in exchange for the good stuff, like food and lodgings. That said, a tolerant cat is not necessarily a happy cat. Higher stress levels are reported in cats that are prescribed by their owners as tolerating rather than actively disliking petting. So, what's the best way to stroke a cat, pet a cat? The key to success is to focus on providing the cat with as much choice and control during interactions as possible. For example, the choice to indicate whether they want to be petted or not, and control over where we touch them and for how long. 
Due to our tactile nature and love of cute things, this approach may not come instinctively to many of us, and will likely require a little self-restraint. But it could well pay off as research shows interactions with cats are likely to last longer when the cat, rather than human, initiates them. We're going to take another quick break. You are listening to The S Factor. I am your host, Chuck Shazer. I want to thank you for joining me aboard my starship today. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And also, if you go to Google and type in The S Factor Podcast, I will pop right up and you can listen to the show in podcast form. Also, be sure to check out scienceanimated.net to help support the show and support the advertisers. That helps keep me on the air, and I appreciate it very much. We will be right back. Now that spring is in the air, we're officially in spring. Summer is not far behind. And we all like to look good. We all like to look good, feel good. We know how important it is to have a healthy diet and how important it is to exercise. There's so many people today that feel like they don't have time to exercise, they don't have time to eat right, but now there is a solution. If you feel like you don't have time, if you feel like you don't have time to travel somewhere to a gym and work out, the solution is Tony Fit. Personal trainer, certified personal trainer, and the creator of Tony Fit, Tony Basil, can help guide you to better health. She can show you the best exercises to do, no matter what the situation is. If you love going to a gym, she can go to the gym with you and show you the proper way to exercise. If you want to do it through a Zoom call, you want to do it virtually, she can do that too. If you have equipment or if you don't have equipment, in either case and in any case, Tawny Basil can guide you in achieving your goals. If your goal is to lose weight, if your goal is to get stronger, if your goal is just simply getting better physical health, Tawny Basil can guide you. She's a professional certified trainer. She has years of experience. She's helped countless clients in the Delaware Valley here, and she can help you too. Contact Tawny Basil. Now, Tawny, what is the best way for the listeners of The S Factor to contact you to get started on their road to better health? You can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text ready. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Basil, text her the message ready to 609-674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com. great tune there. Welcome back to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. If you've listened to the show before, you know I've talked about many threats to Earth, many threats to civilization. We are extremely fortunate to be here on Earth and be living on a planet, even though it is active, but we are relatively safe. And we have been for many, many, many years. And that's a great thing. Now, 
One thing I've talked about in the past is the possibility of coronal mass ejections from the sun, CMEs. If you get a large enough one and we are in the way of it as we orbit around the sun, if we happen to be in the right spot and we get hit with one of these things, it could take out our satellites in space, fry them, basically give them a nice surge and take them out of commission. And you know how much we rely on satellites in space. Not only that, our electrical grid would go down. So that is a very, very real threat. Hardening the electrical grid. Boy, I wish they would do that. I know it would take, you know, millions upon millions of dollars, but we've been spending so much money in the country, I think we should throw a little bit to that because it's in all our best interest that that thing, that our electrical grid stays up. I mean, people's lives depend on that, literally. Not to mention our, our whole system. So I hope we do harden the grid and I hope that we do uh, take care of those satellites in space because it's so important. I mean, just think about GPS. You know, they're not just for entertainment folks with satellites and, and, and communications, but there's, wow. I mean, GPS is a very serious and, and very required technology today. Very serious stuff. So in a neighboring solar system, recently had an event happen, Proxima Centauri shoots out humongous flare with big implications for alien life. Now, this flare that was shot out was around 100 times more powerful than those emitted by our sun. This story from Live Science. Scientists have spotted one of the largest stellar flares ever recorded in our galaxy. The jets of plasma shot outward from the sun's nearest neighbor, the red dwarf star Proxima Centauri. The flare, which is around 100 times more powerful than any expected in our solar system, could change the way scientists think about solar radiation and alien life. Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf, the smallest, dimmest, and most common type of main-sequence stars in the galaxy. Located approximately 4.25 light-years from Earth, its mass is only one-eighth of the Sun's, and it is orbited by two exoplanets. One of these planets, Proxima Centauri b, is considered to be Earth-like and lies within the habitable zone. You know, as they say, the Goldilocks zone, Earth's distance from the sun, is in the Goldilocks zone. It's not too far. It's not too close. It doesn't take much. A little bit further out, we'd be a frozen planet. A little bit closer, you know, look at Mercury. That can tell you what happens in that situation. In a new study, researchers used nine ground and orbital telescopes, including the Hubble Space Telescope, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, and NASA's Transisting Exoplanet Survey Satellite to closely monitor Proxima Centauri for the total of 40 hours over several months in 2019. The star went from normal to 14,000 times brighter when seen in ultraviolet wavelengths over the span of a few seconds. The power of this flare and type of radiation it emitted could change what we know about red dwarfs and the chances of life developing on the planets that orbit them. Stellar flares are the result of a star's strong magnetic fields, these fields, which are created by large amounts of electrically charged gas, can get twisted together and suddenly snap back into place to release an enormous amount of energy in the form of radiation. Kind of like firing an elastic band at someone with your fingers. The flare on Proxima Centauri was extremely powerful compared with those emitted by the Sun. 
Unlike flares from the sun, this one also emitted different kinds of radiation. In particular, it produced a large surge of ultraviolet light and radio waves, known as multimeter radiation. The type and amount of radiation given off by Proxima Centauri could make it very hard for life to survive on orbiting exoplanets, which likely have no real atmosphere due to the powerful flares, according to the researchers. But it's not impossible for alien life to exist there. If there is life on the nearest planet, it would have to look very different than anything on Earth. A human being on this planet would have a bad time. Proxima Centauri's planets are getting hit by something like this not once in a century, but at least once a day, if not several times a day. The researchers now hope to use the wide variety of telescopes to focus on other stellar flares across our galaxy. There will probably be even more weird types of flares that demonstrate different types of physics that we haven't thought about before. Well, I'm glad our sun doesn't behave like this red dwarf that we are talking about here. Incredible. Incredible story there. Again, it illustrates just how fortunate we are our civilization is having a planet, at least right now, that is very ha habitable to us humans. And think about it, it has been ha habitable enough for us to evolve and to get to where we are today. I'm going to take one more quick break and we'll be back with the featured topic, geoengineering. Wait until you hear about this story. I don't know, you may not believe what you're about to hear, but this story coming up next is very interesting to say the least. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. You've landed on the S-Factor. Welcome back to the S-Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. I want to thank you for joining me today. If you are if you have a curious mind, you're going to love this show, the S-Factor. You can listen to me right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock. And of course, as always, you can listen to this episode and past episodes on the S Factor podcast, just go to your Google machine and type in the S Factor podcast, and my show will pop right up for you. Now, geoengineering sounds like a scary word, doesn't it? This next story, I think, is going to bombard me with emails. And if you have anything to say about this next story, please contact me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. Or you can just go to scienceanimated.net, go to the contact form, and you can communicate with me that way as well. You know, I may share it on the air if you are okay with that, of course. And I just know that this next story will, will get you thinking about some things and probably inspire you to contact me. <laughs> so here we go. Bill Gates is thinking about dimming the sun. Did I get your attention? Bill Gates. He's thinking about dimming the sun. How in the world is he going to do this? This is from Popular Mechanics. Bill Gates, who recently suggested the world should eat 100% synthetic beef and said Bitcoin is bad for the planet, 
has set his sights on a new foe. The sun. Gates and other private donors are backing Harvard University's Solar Geoengineering Research Program, which will soon launch a new study researching blocking sunlight from reaching Earth's surface. This week, the influential National Academics of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine also released a new report urging U.S. government to spend at least $100 million to study solar geoengineering, a controversial technology. What is solar geoengineering, anyway, and why are scientists suddenly interested in and concerned by the concept? Geoengineering is a blanket term for technologies that try to alter Earth's physical qualities on the largest scale possible. One example is cloud seeding, where airplanes flush clouds with particulate matter in order to instigate rain. Carbon capture, where emissions are taken and sequestered beneath Earth's surface, is another major form of geoengineering. Now, scientists have devised multiple ways to block sunlight from reaching Earth's atmosphere or surface. These are gathered under the umbrella term solar geoengineering. The most common and studied method is to reflect sunlight away from Earth using aerosol particles in the atmosphere. But until now, this has been seen as more of a fringe idea. It's the instigating event of the 2013 film Snowpiercer, for example, where blocking sunlight has turned Earth into a lifeless ice ball. While the mechanism of an aerosol solar geoengineering study is simple, the physical structure of aerosol particles literally blocks and scatters light. The reality is more complex. Remember the 2010 eruption of the Icelandic volcano that blocked the entire sky all the way into Europe? That was an atmospheric aerosol event. The meteor strike that might have killed the dinosaurs blanketed the Earth in a layer of aerosol dust. Almost any everyday substance can be aerosolized in the right conditions. The term is simply any airborne fine particulate that can float in clouds like a gas. Now, solar geoengineering with aerosols runs head into the fact that aerosols, like ozone layer-destroying chlorofluorocarbon, the CFC, spray aerosols have often been a contributor to climate change. Scientists say this lack of concrete information and consensus is a critical failure that must be corrected with new studies. The worst-case scenario is that humankind faces an extreme climate emergency but knows nothing about the that knows nothing about even the long shot ways to address it. This is why scientists are asking now for a major investment in solar geoengineering research. The researchers behind the forthcoming Harvard project say we must study solar geoengineering in case we need to take a drastic action against climate change. The Gates-supported study seeks to do exploratory small-scale experiments in the atmosphere. Calcium carbonate is a plentiful and harmless mineral that is also the active ingredient in Tums. But harmless only goes so far. The repercussions of solar geoengineering aren't necessarily found in the material released, but in the unexpected events of mixing ingredients into the stratosphere. This is why Secopec says most research has focused on an aerosol chemical already found in the stratosphere, sulfuric acid, which is a pollutant. Both need to be studied and likely more. So is all of this a good idea or not? That's hard to say right now, but all of the scientists and backers involved 
We're only suggesting doing research, not taking large-scale action, thankful, thankfully. No one is suggesting we spray the clouds with calcium carbonate tomorrow, or even 10 years from now, but if we don't understand how solar geoengineering will affect the world by the time we need it as an option in our climate playbook, it will be too late. And that's what this news really is, keeping options open and exploring the ramifications of a radical technology. But it seems to me, upon reading this information, they have to conduct the experiment slowly and in real time. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about them toying with the atmosphere? You know, in Yellowstone, Yellowstone sits on top of a super volcano. And my oh my, I hope and pray that thing never goes off in our lifetime. Or at least until humans are off of the planet. Because if that thing went off, it would create so much dust in the atmosphere that I, I believe they said it would take around, I don't know if it was five to seven years for it to clear up. I mean, you would have large-scale death and famine and it would be horrible. You know, so that goes to show you how you know, how important it is to have the atmosphere clear so sunlight can get in. But their, their main concern is that if it gets so hot because of global warming that if we have to dim the sunlight, what's in their head is they, they want to at least have an idea if it'll work or not. So in case they have to you know, go forth with implementing a, a plan of action like that, at least we know it'll work. I want to, you know what, I want to, I want to know what you think about this out there. What do you think about Bill Gates and this plan to try dimming the sun? Contact me, info at scienceanimated.net. Email me at info at scienceanimated.net. And boy, do I hope I piqued your curiosity today in science, in the science news bits, in the feature topic, because that's my job. I want to excite you about this stuff because it's so incredibly interesting and we're moving so fast. Humankind is moving so fast with science and technology right now. There's so much to learn. There's so much to know. And I want to thank you for giving me the honor to be in your homes today, of being in your homes today and sharing all this information with you. Again, the S yes Factor is brought to you by scienceanimated.net. If you go online and you want to check out my website, go up to uh, the browser and just, you know, where you put the URL at the very top of the page, type in scienceanimated.net. Got to make sure you got the .net in there. So in the address bar at the top of any browser you like using, whether it's Firefox, Chrome, type in scienceanimated.net up there. I'll tell you why I mentioned this. So in an e-commerce world, you're, you have the ability to look at your site traffic. And I see a lot of people, and, and I thank you very much, a lot of people from the radio that listen to the S Factor radio show podcast do a Google search for my website. Now, if you, if you do a Google search for the podcast, it'll come right up immediately if you type in the S Factor podcast into Google. Now, if you type in Science Animated or Orbit Show, which is one of my YouTube shows, you might have a little bit of trouble doing it that way. So if you go straight up to the address bar at the very top, and you just type in scienceanimated.net. It'll take you right to my website where you can purchase Science Animated the Human Body. Watch the Orbit Show. Listen to the podcast. Everything's there. And a little 
uh, you know, about me is there as well. You can check out my handsome face there as well. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, I noticed the the traffic was uh, people were typing in, you know, things into the Google search that and it may they may have had a hard time coming to the site. So I just wanted to put that out there. Again, thank you very much for for uh, checking out the website and listening to the show here. And I just love, uh, you know, bringing this content to you every month. We're here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. You have been listening to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. See you next month. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. See you